How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then uh, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and then we'll begin. We've got some work to do. Oh, okay. But you've got to leave the signal going. Thank you. Okay. All right, let's pray. Don't be distracted by the techies. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word to know that there is sure and certain knowledge available to us about your plan and purposes for history, that history is not a composite of just one random event after another, but there is plan and purpose to what is taking place in history, and it is the outworking of a plan set in eternity past. Now, Father, we know that if you are in control of these details, that you are in control of the details of our lives, and therefore we can rest and have confidence and contentment in whatever situations, whatever difficulties, or whatever uh, prosperity we may face in life. We pray that you would help us to understand these things we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As most of you know by now, on Saturday, early Saturday morning on June 5th, Ronald Reagan slipped the traces that harnessed him to this life and to this mortality and He completed his promotion and transition instantly to be face-to-face with the Lord. He was definitely a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of wonderful statements have been made over the last couple of days by his son, Michael Reagan, and I thought I would read one of them to you. In an interview the other day, he said, I can think about the times that we spent together as a father and son, sometimes just literally talking about nothing but just being there, and being in awe of him. I think about those days when he was governor of California and how wonderful a job he did for the state. I can think about the times that he allowed me to be in his presence when tough decisions were ready to be made. For example, on the evening that he chose George W. Bush's father to be his running mate as the candidate for the vice presidency, Dad invited me to be in his inner circle as those decisions were made. I remember the night in 1976 when I asked him what he missed most about not winning his party's nomination as its presidential candidate. He said to me, Michael, what I miss most is not being able to sit down with the Russians and saying to them, yet, because it's been so long that we've been giving up too much to get along with them. It's time for the Russians to get along with us. But what I remember most about my dad and what puts me at peace with where he is today there's a conversation I had with him as he was flying back on Air Force One, and he allowed me to accompany him back to Point Mugu, which is an Air Force base in California. It was Easter week in the last year of his presidency, and he looked at me and he counted out nine on his fingers. I asked what that meant, and he said, Michael, it will be nine more months when I will be able to feel the freedom once again to go to church each and every Sunday. 
You know, Michael, ever since I was shot, I have worried about putting other people in harm's way by being among them. So I haven't been to church on a regular basis, and even though I've offered my presidency up to God, I haven't been with God on Sundays. That's what I'm looking forward to. He went on to say, as I look back over Dad's 93 years, what puts me truly at peace is knowing that my father was fully aware of who his God is. Not only did he offer up his presidency, but he offered up his life a long time ago to serve his God. And so now the peace I feel is knowing that my father has gone home to be with his God and his Lord, and this is the greatest gift that he ever gave me. And in another interview, he made it clear that he knew that he would be reunited with his father in the presence of God because he knew that his father understood that his Lord Jesus Christ had died on the cross for him. I just think that's a wonderful testimony. I was listening today to one of the many interviews that have been going on over the past few days about President Reagan, and the interview today was with an author who wrote a book called God and President Reagan. And he talked about the influence of his mother. His mother's name was Nell. And apparently she taught him the gospel when he was a child. She was an evangelical. His father was an Irish Catholic, but his mother was an evangelical believer. And she must have taught him the gospel as a young child. And she taught him that though he would go through life and make many decisions, one decision he could never affect was the decision about the time and the manner and the place of his death, and that that was in God's hands. And so he was always completely relaxed about the manner, the time of his death. Even when he learned that he had Alzheimer's, he did not react, but was completely sure that this was God's plan for his life. All the things that President Reagan stood for and all the many different things he did for this country, both in terms of the economy, in terms of defeating communism, all the many things, one thing that stood out of the things that I have read in the last week was his understanding the dangers of something that we're studying this evening. That is the dangers of internationalism and the problems that would ensue in what is now known as the European Union. In an editorial written by Mark Stein that appeared on one of the uh, news Internet sites. Mr. Stein comments, makes the following points about Reagan's understanding about the European Union. He says the French seem to think that if you have a commission, this is in relationship to, I think it's uh, Monsieur Giscard and his role with the European Union, seems to think that if you have a commission and a council and a parliament and a president, and a foreign minister, and a common defense policy, and a public pro- prosecutor, and a citizenship, and a flag, and an anthem, and banknotes, and continent-wide minimum wage, then you have the bones and internal organs of nationhood, and you can put flesh on them later. That gets exactly back to the main issue. They're just outward symbols. And without the deeper assumed ties, and he has talked about these deeper ties in Amer- in in America going back to the revolution earlier in the article, says without the deeper ties, all of these other things, these other details, are as meaningless for the European Union as they were for Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. In other words, it can just fall apart. 
As Charles Moore pointed out on Saturday, most of the junk in the so-called European Constitution isn't in the least bit constitutional. That's to say it's not content, as the American Constitution is, to define the distribution and limitation of powers. Many of my New Hampshire neighbors wander around with the Constitution in their pocket so they can whip it out and chastise overreaching congressmen and state representatives at a moment's notice. Try going around with the European Constitution in your pocket, and you'll be walking with a limp after 48 hours. It's full of stuff about European space policy, water resources, free expression for children, the right to housing assistance, preventative action on the environment, and other stuff. They may well be worthy planks and political platform, but they're not constitutional matters. Yet what else is there? The European Constitution attempts to supplant genuine national identities with an ersatz bureaucratic identity, a government identity from which a new national identity will follow. For Ronald Reagan, America was the shining city on a hill. Incidentally, he didn't invent that term. He got that from the Puritans. That's why they come over here. It was a light set on a hill, and it comes out of the Scriptures. And they thought they were establishing, of course, the kingdom of God on earth because of uh, their eschatology or the eschatology of some of the Puritans. Many of them were premillennial, but they were going to establish a Christian uh, outpost. And that's where Reagan got that terminology, that shining city on a hill. For uh, Major Giscard and his fellow founding fathers, the European Union is affordable housing on an environmentally protected hill. <laughs> I can't see it working myself. See, Reagan understood these things. He understood that internationalism doesn't work. Nationalism is a principle that's been established by God for the maintenance of the human race. The Bible is firmly against things such as the League of Nations, the UN, all of this internationalism. One of the greatest dangers that we face in our country today is judicial tyranny. And there are a number of uh, Supreme Court justices who, instead of citing uh, for precedence in their, uh, in their decisions, case law in America, they're looking to the law that's being established in international courts. This is a violation of the biblical principle of independent nationhood and of independent people groups that are not to influence one another. God has established these boundaries, and it goes back to the events in Genesis chapter 11. So open your Bibles with me to Genesis 11. And we will begin a little study of what I have always found to be a fascinating episode. Most people just think of this as some little Bible story about the Tower of Babel. Liberals think this is just some sort of invented myth that people came up with to explain diversity in language. However, if we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, we know that this is telling an absolute truth about scripture, about history. This is what took place. This isn't just some sort of uh, made-up myth to explain uh, the development of language. Now, before we get into the text itself, I want us to stop and just think globally here. And by globally, I mean contextually. 
in terms of the overview of what's going on in Genesis. I keep making the point over and over again that, that we have to read Genesis as if we're a Jew. We have to read Exodus as if we're a Jew, not in the Exodus generation, but our parents were in the Exodus generation, and we're on the verge of entering into the promised land where God has told us to kill every man, woman, and child in Canaan without exception, and that God is going to give us this land. So there's a lot of questions that you would be asking, such as why should we do this? What's the moral justification for this? How can we do this? Why do we have a right to this land? What is God's purpose in doing this? And, and many other related questions. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are simply a prologue to what God is going to do with the nation Israel. Up through Genesis chapter 10, we have had three major events since the creation. The fall and the flood, and now in Genesis 11, the curse of the division of languages at the Tower of Babel. Three cursings. But this sets us up for the major blessing that begins to be expounded starting at the end of Genesis 11 when God calls out Abram and through Abram, or in the Hebrew Avram, through Abram God is going to call out a unique people to himself and he is going to work in and through these people to provide redemption for the entire human race. Now, before you can appreciate what God does with Abraham, you have to have an understanding of the situation on the planet when God called out Abraham. And Genesis 11 gives us that understanding, gives us that explanation. If you think about it, the earth was created about 4,100 B.C., somewhere in there. You have approximately 1,500 years of history prior to Noah's flood, approximately, give or take a little bit. You have, then you have the event of Noah's flood. Noah, who lived about 350 years after, uh, after the flood, has only one thing told of us after the flood, and that's the episode we studied where he got drunk and then pronounced the curse. I want you to think about that a minute. 350 years. Don't you think that some other interesting things happened in Noah's life over that 350-year period? Why is it that the Holy Spirit only picks out this one episode that he's going to put into the Scripture of all the many things that could happen? And in your Bible study, and as you read through Scripture, you ought to take that thought or that strategy I just gave you and say and ask the question, Many times, why of all the things that happen in history is this included in the Scripture and so many other things not included in the Scripture? Well, God is using that episode with Noah and his sons because that sets up in a microscopic way the pattern of of, of civilization, the pattern of all civilization in human history as demonstrated in this Event through the behavior of these three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is noted because he is has a has a devotion to God, positive volition. Japheth is noted because and blessed because he will be enlarged and 
And that has to do not only with physical expansion, but also intellectual expansion. And then Ham is passed over. He is neither blessed nor cursed, but his son, Canaan, receives a cursing. Now, as I pointed out, that has special relevance if you're a Jew and about to go wipe out the Canaanites, because now you understand why the Canaanites are cursed, that they have carried these sinful predispositions of their forebear to such a horrible conclusion, and God has allowed that evil to ripen to such a degree that now their destruction is necessary for the preservation of the human race. And this is the structure, uh, then becomes the structure, the background for understanding Genesis chapter 10, known as the Table of Nations. We have first, the first five verses where we looked at the descendants of Japheth. And we noted, as we looked at that, that this is the shortest list of descendants, that they expand, they go out to the coastlands, the different islands. We trace their expansion all over uh, the northwest uh, of Europe and then eventually on into the period of the explorers in modern time, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, the expansion of the descendants of Japheth. But they expand. This was what, God, what Noah had prophesied. They would be enlarged. They would expand. They expand out so quickly and so rapidly within just a few generations of Noah that they're no longer geographically relevant to what God is going to do with Israel. They're no longer geographically relevant. Japhethites just sort of expand and drop off the edge of the earth, and we really don't start paying attention to Japhethites until you come to Acts and the expansion of the church into Europe. Then in verse 6 down to verse 21, we see the descendants are actually down to verse 20, we see the descendants of Ham. And these are descendants of many peoples in the Middle East, much more relevant to to, uh, Jewish history. You have uh, Cush that's identified with Ethiopia and the Sudan. Mitzrayim identified with Egypt. Put is identified with uh, Libya. And then Canaan is identified with the Canaanites. And then we traced out the descendants of the various sons of Ham and where they ended up as they scattered throughout the Mediterranean area. Now, the interesting thing is that as you go through this list, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so had four sons, and these are the four sons, what stands out in the middle of, of Genesis 10? You read through the whole episode of Genesis 10, and two, there's two diversions from this pattern. The first diversion has to do with Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. Verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, a mighty warrior. He is known for violence. He is known for being a warrior. He is known for hunting in the next verse. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, last time I didn't really spend a lot of time on that phrase. What was he hunting? I mean, think about it. They're now supposed to be meat eaters. They've come off the ark. They've been, uh, they're down to the third generation. The animals are expanding and multiplying and filling the earth. Everybody's hunting. Why is Nimrod noted? And I think that part of it could very well be that, that he's dealing with some of the great monsters that came off the ark. Remember, we pointed out that, that dinosaurs survived. 
dinosaurs were these great creatures. We have stories like Beowulf, and I had thought that I would have time to go through um, some evidence from Beowulf, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. But you can go back and look at Beowulf, and the monster that Beowulf uh, slays is, it fits the description of a Tyrannosaurus rex. He has little tiny feet, uh, four, four arms, and he has large, uh, massive jaws and teeth, and the description fits Tyrannosaurus rex. And you can go back and, and study many of these kinds of accounts that are usually dismissed by modern man since the Enlightenment. It's simply legend. But le- many legends have some foundation in fact, and there are uh, literally dozens of these kinds of legends scattered throughout many different cultures in the ancient world of dragons uh, that were fought by men. And so I think that this is part of how Nimrod established his reputation uh, was in defeating some of these great creatures that threatened man. And he establishes, as a result of his prowess and his power, he is able to uh, call people to follow him, and he begins his kingdom. And we're told in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the beginning of his kingdom, not the end. This isn't the totality of it. It's the beginning of his kingdom, and he spreads out over the over the Middle East. I got my slides out of order here. Let me get to the map. Here's the map. We see the Middle Eastern area around the uh, uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean. And the area that's in focus here is the box I have in what is now pretty much modern Iraq, going up into this area here, touching in Syria. But it's this area of the called the Fertile Crescent, the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. This is the beginning of his kingdom at Babel. Now, the oldest kingdom known to us is the, is the Sumerians. This, you go back to Sumer, which is located in this uh, area where I have the box, and this is the oldest archaeological evidence that we have today. This, this is the kingdom that is founded by uh, Nimrod as he begins to organize the people into these various cities. And we see a parallel between Nimrod establishing these cities and who else founded a city. Go back. Cain, instead of wandering as God told him to do, he establishes himself in a city, fortifies himself against God, as it were. This is the same kind of thing that happens with Nimrod. So we see that Nimrod establishes this kingdom, and it's the foundation of the Babylonian Empire later on, much later on, thousand years later, and Assyria as well. He builds Nineveh and many other major Major cities. Now that's all we're told about in chapter 10, verses 6 through 13, or 6 through 14 describe the descendants of Ham, and then verses 15 down to 20 describe the descendants of Canaan. And then there's a conclusion. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Languages is the second thing mentioned. Uh, if you go back to verse 5, at the end of the description of the descendants of Japheth, we're told, from these, the coastland people, the Gentiles, were separated into their lands. Notice, lands is first. 
They're, they're expanding. They're going to their various countries first and expanding. They're separating into their lands, everyone according to his language, and then according to their families and their nations. And then if you look at the last verse of the chapter, verse 32, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations, and from these nations were divided on earth after the flood. What brought that division? Excuse me, I skipped verse 31. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. So you see the same order of... of um, of families, languages, lands, and nations with Ham, the descendants of Ham and Shem. But with Japheth, the order, is, the order is lands and then language and families and nations. So they expand very rapidly. But the, they're all separated by their languages. That's the second thing that happens. Now, how did that happen? So we get this overview of history in Genesis chapter 10. We look at Shem, then Ham. I mean, excuse me, look at Japheth and then Ham, and we look at Shem. We haven't covered Shem yet. That's verses 22 down to 30, but we will come back to that. I want to merge that in with our study of the, of, uh, uh, the next Toledot, which is in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, which specifically traces out the descendants of Shem. So we'll come back and do that next time. I wanted to just skip over Shem and look at what happens to the descendants of Ham. Because you see, it is the descendants of Ham that settle under Nimrod's leadership at Babel. It's the descendants of Ham that that settle under Nimrod's leadership at Babel. That's the beginning of his kingdom. And we're told in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So what happens here in typical Hebrew narrative fashion is you have a chapter that is a lengthy summary. covers what happens to uh, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Now we're going to come back and we're going to look at a microscopic event in a little detail. Same kind of thing happened in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 covered all the details of the Seven days of creation. Man's created on the sixth day. Then we come back in the second chapter, starting in Genesis 2, uh, 2, 5, 2, 4, 2, 5. And the rest of chapter 2 focuses on the details of the creation of man on the sixth day. This is standard approach to Hebrew narrative. Of course, the liberals come in and say, oh, this is two different accounts. And somebody came along in about the 5th century, 6th century uh, B.C., and they tried to merge these together, but they're just different accounts, and, and there's a lot of inconsistency. Well, that's not how the Jews wrote. They gave you the overview and then the detail. They don't write history in the same way that Western Europeans write history. So they, they take it thematically, and they trace those themes. So first we dealt with the expansion of the sons of, of Noah as they came off the ark in their 70 families, as I pointed out, which are related to the 70 families or the 70 Jews that go into uh, Egypt with Jacob. And that's in uh, Genesis uh, 47, 26, I think. Uh, but there's 70 that go down to Egypt with uh, Jacob. And that's not 
that's not a coincidence. There's a reason for that. So that if you're a Jew and you read that, you understand that there's something special about the relationship of Israel to all of the other nations on the earth, that they are going to be a representation. They're going to be taken out specifically in terms of their proportional, uh, their, their proportional representation to the rest of, of humanity. Now we come to chapter, chapter 11, uh, the Tower of Babel. This is a fascinating episode with a tremendous amount of doctrinal implications. And again, like the Noahic episode with, the, with him getting drunk, you need to ask yourself the question, why is it of all the things that took place between approximately 2600 B.C. when you had the flood and 2000 B.C., approximately 2050 B.C., when Abraham is born, of all the things that took place over that 500-year period, why is this the only thing that we're told about? See, there's a hint of this in the descendants of um, descendants of Shem. And Genesis 10:25 to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. What's this division? This division has to do with the division of tongues. So this takes place about four generations, five generations after after the the flood. So we begin in verse one with sort of a prologue, an introductory summary statement. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Literally in the Hebrew it reads, literally the human race had one lip and one word. Kind of an interesting idiomatic way to put it. One lip and one word. They all spoke the same language. So there's one language over all the earth. Everybody's united. Everybody can understand uh, one another and communicate. And as a result of this, they this enables them to get into trouble. We have the description of man's rebellion against God in verses 2 through 4. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. So if we look at our map, we see that they are journeying from roughly this area up here where you see the uh, green word Rephath, uh, just to the northeast of there is the mountains of Ararat. And so as the... Uh, Descendants of Noah left the ark and began their migration to the south. They headed to the southeast to this area, the area of modern Iraq, the area of the Fertile Crescent. They journeyed, and it's not from the east as the King James or New King James has. It's an idiom in the Hebrew, and it means they journeyed eastward. Or in this case, it was, it was southeast. But the interesting thing in Scripture is whenever man is headed away from blessing, he heads east. When Cain left, he went east. When Adam and Eve went out of the garden after they were expelled from the garden, they went east. East is the direction of condemnation and away from the place of blessing. Notice Babylon, which is located right about here, right about where the P is there on Euphrates, is in what direction from Jerusalem, which is located right about here? East. Okay, see, you know, these aren't just random things. See, you're so indoctrinated in 
uh, history as being just a bunch of random events, as Henry Ford just said, just one damn thing after another. You know, that's how most, most of us were taught history, just, just random events. And what the Bible shows us is that these things aren't just random, but there are patterns because, you see, there's a sovereign God in control of history. And so history is important because it is the outworking of his plan. It came to pass as they journeyed eastward, literally, that they found a plain or discovered a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then in verse three, verses 3 and 4, they make a determination. They come to a resolution, a resolve, and express their religious independence of God. They say, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, the second statement, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And then in verse 5, we have a contrast. Note the but. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, this is where we see the structure, see the development of the structure in this passage. This is, has always impressed me as one of the most fascinating literary structures in the uh, Old Testament. There are probably many others. I'm just not as proficient in Hebrew to spot them all. I know there's a number of them. But I had the privilege of studying under a brilliant Hebrew scholar when I was in seminary by the name of Alan Ross. And he not only had his Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary, but he had a second Ph.D. in uh, Hebrew from a little school over in England called Cambridge. And he was, he was brilliant, and his, the, his specialty was in Genesis. He had written his Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas Seminary on the Table of Nations. And I had uh, several courses I took under him when I was at Dallas and one of which was on word studies, and we spent quite a bit of time doing exercises on names. And uh, we also spent a lot of time doing, doing uh, exercises on word plays. And that's what you have in Genesis 11, is you have an interesting structure. First of all, there's a chiasmus here. We studied chiasmus before. It comes from the Greek letter X. And if you line something up, the, the different parts of a... Of a, of a paragraph or several sections, and you outline them, then they'll show that there's the first half is sort of a mirror image of the second half, so that it looks like one side of an X. You'll see what I mean in the outline. First of all, the first principle is that in the first verse establishes the point that all the earth had, had one language. And it says in verse 2, It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. That's your second line. It's an emphasis on the location there. Then in verse 3, they said to one another. So they line themselves up. They ally themselves to one another, each one to his neighbor, literally in the Hebrew. And then in the fourth point, they make their first statement, come let us make bricks. And this is in verse also in verse 3. And then in verse 
for they establish the reason to make a name for themselves. That is, they want to make a reputation for themselves. They want to, this is really an idiom for the fact that they want to establish themselves independently of God. They are standing there shaking their fist at God. This is the point of this whole narrative is to show what happened to the human race, that they set themselves against God and independence of God and rejected him as as God. So they built a city and a tower in verse 4. And then in verse 5, the Lord comes down. Now, this is the focal point of this whole episode. That's why you go through this exercise of setting up a, a structure like this. This isn't just for the fun of doing it. But you can analyze the structure of a passage, and it gives you the, the, the thrust of what the writer is getting at. And there's a lot of different ways, sophisticated ways, that the Holy Spirit uses to make sure people get the point that he's driving home. And the point that he's driving home here, and one of the major themes, is God's involvement in human history that he is involved in the human race. He's not some absentee landlord who just, or an absentee watchmaker who just started things up and left and he's off somewhere, but he is, he is an involved God who is not only transcendent, but he is also eminent. He's involved in human history and he sovereignly controls history. So he came down, and in verse 5 he comes down and he looks, at the city and the tower which the sons of men made. See, that's a parallel to verse 4 where they built a city and a tower. And then he looks at what the humans built, and that is parallel to verse 4. They're making a name for themselves. And then the D prime, as we went in, we had A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Those are seven statements. The Lord comes down as your G statement. Then F prime the reflection of F is the city and the tower. E prime is that the humans built, which is parallel to let's make a name for ourselves. And then God says, come, let us confuse their languages. That's, of course, parallel to the man's statement, come, let's make bricks in verse 3. Then C prime, which is the reflection of C, is before they talk to one another, now they're not going to understand one another in verse 7 that they may not understand one another's speech. B prime is that they're going to go forth from there. See, they all gathered there, and now they will be dispersed from there. Verse 8, and then the last statement in verse 9, therefore the place is called Babel, because from there the Lord... Uh, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So they go from one language in our first verse to many languages in the last verse. So you see that structure, and you can see how it, how it moves in and out on the visual, and that shows you the left side of a letter X. And that's why it's called a chiasm. And this is how you can organize a, a list of things when you're writing something, and you are showing that you understand something about literature, and you're highlighting what's in the middle. I remember one time I wrote something, and I used a chiasm, and the person who was editing it said, no, no, you have to follow the same order. After you take it one way, you have to follow that same order out. And I said, no, this is called a chiasm, and that person did not understand what a chiasm was. They shouldn't have been editing 
You know, as soon as you try to use something a little sophisticated, but most Americans are too ignorant of literature to be able to follow what you're doing. But see, when you don't have things like boldface and italics and underline and all of these things that we have today, you have to do it through the way you organize the literature and the way you say things. So you use, you use various literary devices instead of boldface. You know, it's, it's funny, you don't see it quite as much now as you did. But remember when uh, computers first gave us the ability to boldface and italicize and shadow and all those different font faces, and you would see some people just went nuts. Every time they made a point, it was a different font face. They bolded this and they italicized that, and then they, they put this in shadow, and before long, every other thing is emphasized in some way, so nothing's emphasized. You know, when you write, you use those things very sparingly, very sparingly. Otherwise, if you're emphasizing everything, you emphasize nothing. But what we see here is different sophisticated ways of bringing out the point of the text. And the point of this whole passage is that man, left to his own devices, will unite in rebellion against God And if that's left to go to its natural conclusion, it will destroy the human race as it did before the flood. And so God steps in and confuses the languages in order to forestall this. Now what we're seeing today is that we're moving back to a point where we are close to this same kind of international cooperation. This is why if you are a biblical Christian... You should cringe every time we bow the knee to the United Nations, every time we go to them for anything. Uh, This is internationalism in its worst form. It's a precursor to what will take place in the tribulation period. I'm not saying that the U.N. is the uh, ten-nation revived Roman Empire. I'm not saying that the Secretary General of the U.N. is the Antichrist. But this is the kind of mentality that is going to characterize the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kind of one-world government that takes place. And remember, they achieve it to some degree because Revelation 9 teaches us that no one in the whole world will be able to buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. So he exercises some sort of universal worldwide control. So all this, there's a tremendous movement towards globalism. It's, it's an irresistible movement today, with the, especially with the Internet and with uh, so many other things that are going on. But we have to resist it as much as possible. So God is going to interfere with man so that he can uh, preserve the human race long enough to bring about redemption and to bring about the resolution of his plan. But this idea of confusion is the key thought here. In verse 9 we read, Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages. And actually, many people think that's what Babel means. It comes over into English. I'm pronouncing it with the Hebrew pronunciation, um, Babel, with the the emphasis on the the second syllable, Babel or Bavel, it's a, this is a hard B, this is a soft B, so it's sometimes pronounced like a, a, uh, a V, Bavel. And in English, we have a word that's borrowed from this word called Babel. 
And when you hear people babbling, that's where it comes from, is this confusion of languages. They're talking and it doesn't make sense. But you have another word that's used here in the text that is balal, B-A-L-A-L, balal. This is the word which in Hebrew means confuse, not babel. This may actually mean uh, the gate of of Bel. B-E-L was one of the gods in the uh, Babylonian uh, pantheon. But what what the Bible is doing here is making a play on words. You see, when when a Jew heard the word Babel, he would think of Balal. It sounded that way. So you have many different ways in which you can make a pun. You know what two thirds of a you know what pu is? That's two thirds of a pun. Well, wake up a little bit. It's really bad. I I can get a lot worse. Okay, and that's what these are, is these are word plays. These, these are, are puns in the Hebrew. But they're not just there because the writer is trying to be amusing. They're there because he's trying to get the reader's attention and to make points. He's, he's using boldface type. He's using italics. He's using underlining in order to do this. And so this is the kind of thing that goes on. Well, there's two kinds of word plays that take place. One is called a paranomasia. This is the technical word for a word play. And in a paranomasia, the words not only sound similar, but there is also an etymological connection between the words. We have several examples of this in Genesis 11. Then you have a second kind of word play, which is just a phonetic word play. They just sound similar. They don't, they're not etymologically related. That means they don't have the same meaning or the same root. They can't be traced back to a similar uh, root word. So Babel and Balal are uh, words that aren't connected etymologically, but they sound similar so that when a Hebrew writer uh, or a Hebrew reader read this, read Babel, he would think of the Hebrew word Balal for confusion. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that the writer uses the letter B and L as well as the letter N in a lot of different ways. And what this is is to bring our attention back to this BL uh Wordplay that constantly throughout this whole narrative you have the use of the choice of words that have these sounds in them so that it brings to the reader's attention and reminds him again and again in these subtle ways of, of uh, this emphasis on, on, uh, on confusion. In verse 3 in the Hebrew it reads, Hava nilvana levanim lahim halabana laven. Notice, listen to the L's and the B's as I read this. That's all you need. You don't need to understand what I'm saying. Just listen to the L's and the B's. Verse 4, you have Hava nivne lanu. Verse 5, banu vene. Verse 7, benabala. Verse 8, 
V'yahadalah luvnot. So again and again, he's using, choosing these words with these sounds in order to highlight and emphasize this pattern of confusion. And then in the passage of, in verse 4, verse 4, the people get together, or verse 3, the people come together, and they say, let us make bricks. Let us make bricks, and the Hebrew word here is, let us come together to make bricks. And so they use a lamed of, the writer uses a lamed of purpose, and then he is going to use the uh, third hey verb, bana. But what it comes out, that's L-B-N-H. You drop the H, and what you're left with is an L-B-N combination. Then God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse. Let us confuse their language. And so there we have Naval, NBL. See? You get a chiasm in the letters of those two words. This, you know, and people say this, some, some ignorant, illiterate shepherd put this stuff together. This is incredible literature. Now, you miss most of this because you're reading this in English. But if you read it in Hebrew, it's, it, it's, got, it's more tightly structured than some of the most incredible English literature you've ever seen. And that's because of the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And all of these little details highlight for us the theme of this particular passage, which is the confusion that is brought about because of the rebellion of man against God. That's the main idea. When man rebels against God, the result is always going to be a confusion and divine judgment. So man in this passage sets himself up against God in an overt act of rebellion. But God in his omniscience knows what the consequences are going to be. It's going to be the same thing as before the flood. Second verse, same as the first. So in order to forestall that, God confuses the languages. He comes down to see the city in verse 5 and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They're united. And they all have one language. And that And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, God recognizes that if they continue, they will end up accomplishing all matter of evil through this uh, internationalism. So then God makes a resolve. Notice his resolution in verse 7 is parallel to the resolution and determination of the... uh, people of Babel in verses 3 and 4. He says, come let us go down, indication of the Trinity there. The, who's he talking to? He's talking to with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's not just using a uh, majestic we, as some writers will say. This isn't simply that. There is a Trinitarian hint here. Come let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Interesting note. Earlier I made the point that Japhetic people in, were enlarged and they expanded over the earth. Hamitic people now are scattered forcibly over the earth, not from their own initiative, but they're forcibly scattered all over the earth. Everywhere you go, if, if let's say, for example, let's go back a thousand years, and it's a thousand A.D., if you were to take off from Europe in 1000 A.D., everywhere you would go, Africa, India, southern India, Asia, North America, South America, Oceania, all the islands out in the South Pacific, who lives there? Descendants of Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Hamites. Everywhere. They were scattered over the earth. Another interesting observation here that, that uh, has been made is that there is more confusion and more a diversity of Hamitic languages than either Semitic or Shemitic languages or Japhetic languages. You can trace back all of your Indo-European languages to Sanskrit. You can go back and you can trace them. There's a very tight parental genealogy that you can create if you study the languages. If you are among Shemite languages, for example, Akkadian uh, Ugaritic, Hebrew, Aramaic, they're very similar. They're very close. They're closer to one another than the Romance languages of, of Spanish, Latin, French. Uh, they're, they're much more uh, closely related. And that's why in studying Hebrew, it's important to study your cognates in uh, these other languages, especially if you have a word that's only used one or two times in the Hebrew Old Testament, we're not sure what it means. Well, check out the consonantal pattern in Ugaritic or Akkadian or Aramaic and trace its usage in those other languages. And it's pretty easy to do. The vowel points will be different, but the consonants will be the same. It's, it's tremendous uh, how similar they are. In fact, I just read a newsletter from Arnold Fruchtenbaum who had in his newsletter, I know some of you get that, but in Arnold's newsletter he was talking about The Passion of Christ, the, the, move, the film that, that Mel Gibson just put out. And he made the observation that, you, you know, they only spoke Latin and Greek and Aramaic in the movie, and you, you and I read most of that with subtitles because I don't know how to uh, understand spoken Greek or uh, Aramaic. But Arnold said if you knew Hebrew, and of course he's fluent in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, you could pretty much understand what they were saying in Aramaic. See, that's how close the, those languages are. But when you get into Hamitic languages, they're radically different so that you can have uh, groups. There have been many studies done, for example, in Papua New Guinea, where you might have 20 or 30 different tribes scattered across uh, on either side of a, a river or along a coast within a 10-mile area, and they all came from an original source. But the languages are so diverse now that they can't understand each other, that if you separate, some of these tribes become separated. You know, they, they just live in very small groups of maybe 10, 15 family groups. They get much larger. They, they overpopulate the area, so they'll split off. Within 10 years, those two groups can't communicate with each other at all. And this is true in 
numerous areas of the world. It's, it was true among uh, the uh, it's true among the languages of the uh, American Indian. They trace there can be traced back to five basic family groups. That there were uh, hundreds of different dialects, and as they just split between each other, uh, and and after a while the the uh, two or three tribes split from one another. They they couldn't communicate at all with one another. So the diversity among Hamitic languages is much more extreme and pronounced than those among either Japhetic or Shemitic languages. And why is that? Because the curse of the scattering of the languages fell right on the Hamites and the rebellion at Babel, not on the other two groups. Although it affected them, they weren't the ones who bore the brunt of God's uh, division of languages. So this is what is set up. Now, we have certain parallels of this event. I just want to go over one very, very quickly. And next time we'll come back and deal with some of the implications of the Tower of Babel in terms of internationalism. This is really the establishment of the fifth divine institution the establishment of nations and national distinctives and national divisions. And it's important to recognize that God has established nations, not internationalism, but national distinctions, as a social structure for the preservation of the human race. Because without it, man would unite and destroy himself. And that's eventually what will happen during the tribulation period. And I think one of the things that will allow that to take place is computers. How is man getting around uh, language problems now? Well, you you, you create a computer language that everybody can use. So these are just different ways in which the human race is uh, slowly turning things back. Well, there's a parallel to to the episode of Babel given in the Akkadian version of the creation account called the Enuma Elish. And we looked at this back in Genesis 1 in the creation narrative. And there's an episode in there that talks about this situation. It talks about the chief god in the Babylonian pantheon who's called Marduk. Now, if you look at the consonants in Marduk's name, you have M, R, D, and K. Now, if you look at the consonants in Nimrod's name, you have N, M, R, D. D, And there is an identification of Marduk with Nimrod. If you trace things back, I've talked about the Euhemerists and how they were identifying ancient uh, uh, pantheons and the gods and goddesses with the descendants of Noah. And Marduk was seen to be equivalent with Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod became deified into the pantheon of his descendants and was worshipped. So that has some element of, of historical background there. When Marduk heard this, his countenance shone exceedingly like the day, and he said, So shall Babylon be, whose construction you have desired. Let its brickwork be fashioned and call it a sanctuary. So it starts off with bricks. Now, what did they use in Egypt to build the pyramids? Pyramids are a later development of this ziggurat uh, tower uh, approach. Let it be from brickwork and call it a sanctuary. See, there's a recognition that this has, the Tower of Babel wasn't just the idea we're going to build a tower. It had religious significance. Man was 
putting himself in the place of God, the creature in place of the Creator. Let its brickwork be fashioned, call it a sanctuary. The Anunnaki wielded the hoe. One year they made bricks for it, and the second year, when the second year arrived, they raised the head of Esagila. That was the name for this sanctuary. They raised the head of Esagila on high, level with the Absu. They raised it to heaven. What do they want to do in, in, um, in Genesis 11? They want to create this tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, they know they're not going to build it to heaven, but they're going to build it high enough so that they can survive a flood. See, that's the idea. Man is going to unite against God, so God can't do to man what God did before the flood. He's not going to destroy them again. They're going to figure out a way to fight against God. So there's a religious motive here, and they are asserting themselves uh, against God. So we see several parallels with uh, the Genesis account. There's the name of Marduk, which is associated with Nimrod. The location is the same. It's in Babylon. It's, uh, both towers are built to be on a level with heaven. Uh, they're both made of bricks, and there's the pride of the builders. Now, one of the things that I haven't noted is that this is a tremendous engineering feat. What do you have to do to build a tower like this? You have to have some knowledge of geometry, uh, trigonometry. You have to develop, a, you have to be able to manufacture your bricks, so you have to build the kilns. You have to uh, be able to uh, figure out what the weight support is. There are just a number of factors that go into this which indicate that these are not just just a few uh, country bumpkins who are getting together and trying to build a tower. They are intelligent, powerful, accomplished people, and it took this event took place over a period of years. And their whole desire is to establish themselves against God, that man on his own can solve man's problems apart from God. Well, next time we'll come back and we'll see that that's exactly what internationalism is. That's why we have the establishment of the fifth divine institution, is because man seeks to solve his problems through international cooperation. In contrast to that, the Scripture says that that ignores the problem, which is independence from God and sin. And so internationalism will never work, but that is the ultimate goal of the Antichrist, there will be uh, that will be artificially achieved during the tribulation period, and then it will almost immediately collapse, and it will lead to the uh, almost the complete destruction of the human race. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this evening, to look at these events, and to realize that they're not just simple stories, but they have profound significance for human history. That you are involved in history, and just as you intervened at the Tower of Babel, so you intervene in the lives, or you have intervened in the history of man to provide salvation. Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we've studied, help us to have a greater appreciation for your work in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.